Hi, I'm Suzanne and your host for the IEEE EMC Society podcast, the podcast to discuss interesting topics on electromagnetic compatibility to our technical community. In this issue, we will talk with Tom Braxton. Hi, Tom. Oh, hello, Suzanne. Thank you. Tom, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Who are you with yeah. and what's your background and your fields of interest regarding EMC? Yes, happy to. Uh, I'm delighted that this program is in place and that you're doing this because it, this is the kind of thing that I've uh, hoped would happen for a long time and that we raise awareness, uh, not just within the EMC society or even in the engineering community, but outside that as well about the importance of the kind of work we do. Uh, I've been, my interest in this goes way back. I, I've been working in this field for well over 40 years probably more years than I care to admit, but it's, uh, I had an interest in this even as a young man when I, were, when I was still in high school, I uh, was always playing with radios, as it were, and it was, uh, I had an amateur radio license and I would work on all, playing with antennas and making adjustments and doing experiments. And what always annoyed me was interference. And when I learned early in my career that there was an actual discipline dedicated to minimizing interference, I was I was happy to jump in and join that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I started out, uh, I got a undergraduate uh, degree from Purdue University. And then thereafter got a job at what was then Bell Telephone Laboratories, <clears throat> which was the development organization for the old uh, telephone company, the telephone network, Bell System in the US. And I worked, and then oh, as the years went by, it gradually evolved into AT&T Bell Laboratories, and then later into Lucent Technologies Bell Labs. And I was there for 23 years. And then uh, there was the changes in the industry and the economy. I moved on and I worked independently as a consultant for five years doing EMC consulting. And it was deeply interesting work, it really was. I was called upon to work with uh, companies and manufacturers who had an EMC issue and it was detective work which uh, was kind of fun when they and being a consultant when you show up as a consultant you are uh, regarded as a hero because you can help solve a problem and that was a nice role to play and I was able to do that and uh, and show up at these places and they would have some interference issue or some uh, some sensitivity somewhere and I would help them identify it and resolve their problem I did that for about five years, and then uh, thereafter I worked for uh, Sure Incorporated, the company that makes microphones and audio equipment. They're based uh, just outside Chicago, and I was there for 14 years, and I retired from there earlier this year. And uh, so I uh, currently I'm working as a marketing engineer with Elite Electronic Engineering in uh, Downers Grove, Illinois, a test laboratory, and I'm. So I'm still very active in the industry, yes. So I'm doing that and have been doing that for many years. Mm -hmm. So um, besides your daily work, you're highly engaged as well, volunteering in the EMC Society in your local chapter, as well as the TC1 EMC Management Chair. Can you please share with us what do you do in TC1? Yeah, TC1 is one of the technical committees within the EMC Society in IEEE. Uh, TC1 is charged with EMC management, which uh, is a can be interpreted in many ways. <laughs> we choose and we choose in our committee as it's currently structured 
to interpret that as meaning not just management of EMC laboratories, that is where to put your antenna and how to take, keep track of your cables and that kind of thing, but also in a broader sense, how to manage EMC. That is, how do we help train people to understand EMC uh, phenomena? How do we make the general public aware of the importance of EMC and what it is we do and broaden that as well? And, and we've gotten in the last couple of years, we've gotten more deeply involved into risk management. And that becomes more and more important as time goes on. As wireless devices, uh, we had to describe it as that wireless technology has become like another organ in our body. I and mean, because everything is wireless, uh, not just our smartphones, but uh, as the Internet of Things becomes a reality over time, uh, wireless devices will be connecting everything uh, and health, safety, transportation, uh, whatever you name it, is going to be dependent, it already is in many ways, but even more so as the time goes by, on wireless technology, and which makes the practice of EMC all the more important. And uh, so in this past year, uh, through TC1, or through the sponsorship of TC1, a new standard was published. It's 1848, which is on risk management within EMC. And it's, uh, we believe, it's going to become a fundamental thing to refer to as time goes on for the same reasons I just outlined. Uh, and that's so that's very important stuff. Uh, and also, we spend a lot of time in our committee discussing uh, training of EMC and uh, not just uh, how to run a test, but rather what it all means. Uh, while there's a broad, obviously a very broad technical community out there, our experience has been that not enough people know about EMC practices or even the EMC phenomenon to understand uh, how to approach it or what it means or if there's an issue, how to deal with it. And so training in that regard is something we're trying to expound on. Uh, that also awareness. I, I call it awareness just making people uh, in the general public, non-technical population, aware of what we do. Uh, not just to congratulate ourselves, but rather to make them understand that when they do have an issue, when their device isn't working correctly, or when they hear an annoying, on the most fundamental level, if they hear an annoying buzzing on their radio, uh, why is that happening? And what can they do about it? And what, what should manufacturers do about it? Uh, and on it goes. So the, uh, TC1 deals with EMC management, and we choose to interpret that as meaning all these things. Uh, lab practices, but also um, the management of the art in within and without the technical community. Mm -hmm. So uh, EMC management is one field of uh, the technical communities within the technical committees within the EMC society and obviously there are different co committees uh, with different focuses and EMC management is one very important as well in order to make people aware of EMC in, in general like the basis or the fundamental things. So if we have listeners who are interested in volunteering or volunteer work, uh, how can they become a volunteer technical committee? Yeah, well, the, the quickest way to do that is contact me. Because uh, actually, I, several years ago, the EMC Society website was redesigned and I, I led that effort. I didn't do the redesign, but rather I 
coordinated the, the work that was done to get it redesigned. And part of that was encouraging the various technical committees to update their portions uh, on the website. Now that's always a challenge. We have a volunteer organization and the membership of the committees change over time. So, uh, but trying to make that as uh, seamless as possible so that the technical committees can maintain information on their on their meetings, on their, if their new standards are released or if there's some activity going on, that could be on there. But what someone who has an interest could do is go to uh, the IEEE EMC Society website, which is uh, www.emcs.org and look under technical committees. And what that will do is list the various committees that are active and describe briefly what it is they do. And if you see something that interests you, you can contact me directly because I was coordinating those contacts and I still am. So my email address is tbraxton, T-B-R-A-X-T-O-N at IEEE.org, IEEE.org. And let me know that you have an interest in uh, getting involved in one of these technical committees. And I can get you in touch with the chair of the specific committee and they can let you know what's going on and get you involved in their meetings and whatever the current activity is. So that's the most straightforward way to do it. Uh, and currently, since I'm the contact for that, I'm I'm the right person to contact. So that's uh, contact me in my email. It's tbraxton at IEEE.org. And so, or anyone that has a question about a committee for that matter, they can send those questions to me also. And I can, uh, if I don't have an answer, I know who to call to get an answer for them. So that's, uh, we can do that as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tom. Uh, it's it's always good to know whom to contact. Tom, you're publishing a series of EMC in real life articles. Your latest is about a shock on the finger. Please tell us about the shock on the finger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I like these stories because they they're actual stories. I mean, they, they do. They're not uh, not just technical articles, but rather. Uh, there's a story to tell. Actually, that's true of most scientific discoveries. Um, the ESD, electrostatic discharge, is uh, comes under the EMC umbrella because it's a electromagnetic phenomenon. And everybody, everybody, uh, from the youngest infant to the oldest person, has dealt with uh, an ESD event. And uh, the shock on the finger you referred to is how I opened the most recent article. It was published on LinkedIn through the IEEE Uh, EMC Society page on LinkedIn, and it was the most recent piece I put on there. It's part of a series that we're doing uh, monthly on there. That uh, there are articles I've been writing for the last couple of years for the EMC Society magazine, but the EMC Society magazine is a quarterly publication, and so we're also supplementing that with pieces uh, so that there be a monthly installment on LinkedIn page. But the most recent one that you refer to here is the one about ESD. And the example I gave, which I think literally everyone can relate to, is if you're uh, coming to your home or some other building and you're you know, typically on a low humidity day, if you live in an environment where it's chilly or uh, temperature is lower in some months, you pull off a sweater and you reach for a doorknob, you get a zap on your finger. And it's, it's, everybody's had that experience in one, one form or another, whether it's on a car door or a doorknob in a building or... Uh, the edge of a metal cabinet or something and that's that's an ESD event and one of the, one of the points I make there is that 
uh, it's annoying to us because it startles us and sometimes you know causes our arm to jump. But that's uh, that's an annoyance for us. But in electronic devices, it can be annoying to that too, uh, in that it can disrupt its operation, especially a, a logic device. Uh, logic devices, digital devices that operate with digital logic, require a clock signal to run it uh, through its states uh, as it as it operates. So boom, 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 boom. There's a clock running in there, and they have sharp electronic clock edges. If an ESD event, uh, an impulse, a sudden impulse gets in that circuit and happens to occur at the right instant, it can disrupt the clock function in the device and throw off its operation, which may result in uh, I don't know, you know, cause some calculation to be done incorrectly, or a change of function, or a change of state, or maybe nothing, depending on how it. At what instant it lands on the in the stream of clock pulses, uh, so that's always been a concern. It's been and more so as digital devices became more uh, more ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're uh, and that's a, it's a concern, and it has been for many years. Uh, now, before electronic devices existed, static uh, what we call static electricity, which is when the ESD event is the discharge of the buildup of static charges. And from the grandest scale in the lightning strike, which is also an ESD event, just on a titanic scale. I mean, you're talking about millions of volts at uh, thousands of amperes. Whereas what happens on your finger, maybe 10 or 20,000 volts, but at micro or nano amps of current. But it, it's still the same phenomenon. The difference is, uh, in what happens on your finger is because you're rubbing a fabric across your skin and is building up a charge. Whereas in the sky. You have many hundreds of square miles to square kilometers of clouds rubbing against each other, creating an enormous charge, and so you get millions of volts of potential, and you get a huge ESD event. Uh, now that's that that uh, phenomenon, that event, that, that that thing has been understood or characterized through ancient history, and that's a story I told in the in the article I wrote. And it's interesting because. Uh, in ancient Greece, that's where it was first recorded. Uh, this is in thousands of years uh, in BCE. And this is we're talking about six or eight thousand years ago. It was understood that if you took a piece of fur and rubbed it on a piece of amber, something happened to it, and it could attract feathers or, or light particles of dust or something. And while that was a novelty, uh, it was interesting. You know, I guess maybe in those days uh, someone did magic tricks and they could show <laughs> their friends they could lift <laughs> feathers or something but but also they it was an annoyance for them too i mean uh, they were dealing with with primitive metals then and so if they were reaching for a, uh, a bronze vessel or a cup or a pitcher or something or a plate and they were wearing cloth garments and they sh shuffled over and they reached for it and they got zapped in their fingers too so I mean, they had the same experience well that was understood for all that time and all through history uh, in the uh, 1700s, at least in the U.S., uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, you know, a notable character in American history, but he was also a, a curious fellow, and he did scientific experiments. And he was fascinated by uh, early experiments done by other scientists uh, before Faraday and Hertz and, and uh, those scientists. But before that, there were others who had done work characterizing uh, electricity, and they had no vocabulary for it. But he wondered if lightning was similar to the ESD he got in his finger when he pulled off his uh, his jacket. So he did an experiment where he flew a kite in a lightning storm 
which is not recommended. It's a good thing. <laughs> you could uh, you, it may ruin your whole day if you if you're holding a lightning, uh, holding a kite string and got hit by lightning. But this experiment worked, and at the end of it, he was able to detect a spark coming off of it because from a discharge, it was conducted down the string, a wet string, and was able to store some of that charge in a Leyden jar, a very primitive battery. And therefore, he concluded that yes, lightning was the same phenomenon in DSD, just on a larger scale. And uh, so it was, in fact, it was uh, Ben Franklin who coined the original terms positive and negative, right, and described the flow of current. And then, so that he was one, he's a notable figure, but he was one of many who did that kind of work until, you know, 100 or 150 years later, uh, you had scientists like Faraday and Hertz and, uh, and Oliver Lodge, people like that, who discovered the phenomenon of um, essentially radio propagation. And then later it was uh, Guglielmo Marconi, the Italian inventor, who occurred to him that if you have a wireless signal, you could interrupt it and send Morse code and send telegraph messages without wires. And and uh, I see in well everything that for us who work in this industry, industry began or the history began at that point. <laughs> but it was it goes back to very early experiments thousands of years ago with ESD. And that's the story it tells here. But in our current time, we worry about ESD because, as I was describing, if it interrupts a digital clock, uh, it can, uh, it will cause, and very likely, will disrupt the operation of the device, which may or may not be an issue. And, uh, if it's a, uh, the example I give is that if it's a uh, electronic game, a child's toy, the, the child pushes buttons on it, and it's subjected to ESD, well, maybe cause some. Um, uh, some lights to flicker on the display, which may or may not be a problem. You don't care. And it's not an issue. It doesn't, uh, it, it's a non-critical application. But again, the other extreme is if it's a medical device, like a heart monitor or an intravenous pump or something like that, an ESD event gets in there and causes lights to flicker or some state to change, that can literally be a life or death problem. So it's, uh, ESD is a real concern in all kinds of devices. Yeah, navigation, uh, traffic control, uh, again, medical devices, uh, communication, whatever. And so it's a real concern. And But it uh, it's useful to know you know, these stories than that how we came to this point. And it's, that's the, in a bigger sense, that's the importance of scientific research. We learn things that may or may not have an immediate application. I mean, the ancient Greeks had no idea that we would be testing for ESD in the year 2021, but we are. And that's uh, partly because of the discovery they made and the work of uh, Dr. Franklin you know, 300 years ago. So it's uh, it's all all of a piece. That's what this article is about. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to convey. And that's, as I say, this is part of a series in the EMC magazine and on the LinkedIn page for the EMC Society. Uh, so it'll be, there have been a number of these in the past year and they'll be continuing and other stories like this. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tom, for referring to that article. And we will put the link to the article as well in the show notes so the listeners can refer to the link if they want as well. So since we looked back in the ESD history, let's take a look as well to the future. What do you think, what relevance has ESD for EMC or as well for an EMC engineer regarding the future? Well, what are future challenges? Yeah, and as I think I alluded to before, as time goes on, 
uh, wireless technology and high-speed digital technology in general, for that matter, is a uh, it is absolutely it becomes a vital part of our lives. It already has, and it controls everything we do. I shouldn't say it controls. It is the vehicle by which we control everything we do, and it, whether it's uh, transportation, uh, economic uh, operation, uh, health and safety, whatever. But everything re requires successful operation of electronic devices, and uh, we have to. And it's just a fact. Uh, all electronic devices are, are digital in their operation, and all are sensitive to ESD. And so we need to, we collectively, especially those in the EMC uh, world, uh, the EMC society members, as other EMC practitioners as well, or the engineers who find themselves suddenly having to fix any EMC problem, which uh, is is how many of us got into this business because uh, it was an EMC problem and no one knew how to deal with it. And they were, someone was thrust into that role and they had to figure it out. But this is, uh, but yeah, as time goes on, <clears throat> we become even more dependent on wireless technology. And so it becomes more urgent than ever to, to uh, mitigate the effects of ESD and not just ESD, but uh, electromagnetic interference, EMI in general. Uh, the proliferation of, at least in North America, Europe, and other parts of the world, 5G wireless technology is being rolled out, and it's it's yet another another breakthrough in communication tools, and it's wonderful, and we'll be able to do many things. But also, what it means is we have even more reliability on the wireless network, and all the tools and devices that function on the wireless network. And all the more reason we have to be concerned that they continue to operate properly. And that's uh, so understanding ESD and its effects on devices and how to test devices so that we minimize the risk of their having an issue once they're out in the field. Uh, and ESD is the obvious example of that, but e, uh, EMI interference in general is always a concern. And that's what EMC society is all about. Is that they've been always. Uh, many years ago, when I was a young man playing with radios, and I was concerned about interference on my radio, uh, that was an annoyance to me. But uh, it's something that uh, is—it becomes of uh, really life and death importance on some portions of the industry, depending on what what device is being affected by it. So, yeah, as far as the future goes, yeah, I just see there's more and more work and more and more things for EMC engineers to be concerned about. Uh, EST is a part of that, of course, but. Uh, it's EM, EMI in general, and uh, using EMC practices to mitigate those effects of ESD and EMI. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tom, for giving that outlook. And I think we are as well uh, at the end of this episode. Tom, I would like to thank you so much for being my guest today, introducing yourself, introducing TC1 EMC management, as well as the history of ESD and giving a, well, an outlook to the EMC world in general. Thank you, Tom, for being my guest. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Well, thank you for producing this uh, program. This is, a, again, this is part of, like, I was describing uh, TC1's effort to raise awareness about EMC and its importance. Uh, and I hope those who are able to hear this podcast are able to understand that Uh, EMC and uh, and the mitigation of EMI effects and ESD being the particular topic we talked about is more than just a curiosity for 
some engineering guys who work in this field. I mean, it's a it's a, it's an everyday concern, and engineers like um, like Suzanne and many others who work in this industry and those who are active in the EMC Society are working toward that end, so that as the network becomes more more dense, for lack of a better term, it just touches every part of our lives. It continues to operate properly in the face of being surrounded by electromagnetic interference uh, and ESD, which is part of that. So yeah, and, and myself, I know I'm, I'm very active in the Chicago chapter of the EMC Society. And there are many chapters in the EMC Society around the world. And I would encourage anyone who may be listening who can check if they're if they're aware of the local EMC chapter in their area, please, by all means, contact them and get involved. Uh, if you're not sure if there is one there, you can check uh, www.emcs.org and they have a list of the uh, local chapters in there. If you can't find an answer there, again, uh, I'll throw myself out there. You can contact me directly. I'm at tbraxton, T-B-R-A-X-T-O-N, at ieee.org. And I'll, if I can't have an answer right away, I can find out an answer. I can get that to you. So uh, please, uh, if you're a technical person or if you're not a technical person, please get involved with this. And uh, when someday when uh, you have a friend or a neighbor who has a radio interference problem and you're able to solve it, you will be a hero. <laughs> so I learned that when I was a consultant and it, it's a lot of fun. And who does not want to be a hero? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Right. Yes. <laughs> so um, if you wish to learn more about the EMC, get the latest input from science and the industry, stay tuned. Go to our webpage, emcs.org, or sign up to the IEEE EMC Society podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.